Hey, good morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, so we're going to be hanging out this morning. Hope you brought your Bibles with you. If not, please start bringing them. We use them around here. Um, as you're finding 1 Corinthians 10, I'm going to uh, pray for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we ask that you would take this morning and use it for your glory. We pray, Father, that what hap- has happened in this building, in this space, um, up to this point and to the time that I stop talking up here, that you're just going to receive all the glory from that, that nobody else is going to steal that from you. Um, you've brought people here this morning because you have something that you want for each of us. And so I pray that we'd have attentive ears to hear. I pray that we'd be ready to listen to your spirit prompting us and ready to move into action on what you call us to action on um, and, or to, to sit if you call us to sit. Lord, let us listen to you this morning. I want to pray for my brother uh, Clyde. Uh, who's um, just really battling uh, right now. His, his dad is um, just not doing well. And so I want to pray uh, for him as he walks alongside of his dad. I want to pray, uh, Lord, that you would uh, bring some healing to his dad as well and some comfort in that scenario, uh, as only you can do. Um, not only do you uh, turn uh, spiritual graves into gardens, but you can shun death its victory uh, as well. And so we're praying for that uh, for his family right now. Uh, and we're going to pray that you would do that uh, speedily and bring about recovery um, uh, right now in Jesus' name. Uh, it's in uh, Jesus' name that I do pray. Amen. So I want you to consider this. Uh, you are never too big to fail. Never too big to, to fall down. You've never lived long enough where uh, you've got life all figured out. Um, the truth is that we never outgrow our ability to sin. Be encouraged this morning. Welcome to Riverview. All right? The reality is that we, we never grow up past the ability just to completely blow up our lives because we're still battling this thing called the flesh. Now, we know that we are completely in Christ. If we've given our life to Christ, that we are saved by grace, and it's by grace that we've been saved. It's through uh, faith in what Christ has done, right? There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, so we are completely complete in him. There's nothing that we can earn. There's nothing that we can do. There's no work that we can do. Like, we are completely saved by his grace. But at the same time, we're still working out this thing called the flesh that we have. And when we somehow get to a point where we feel like we've got it all figured out and that we can no longer just kind of blow up our life in an instant from some stupid, dumb thing that we do and walk headlong into sin, then that's the point where we walk into like we are a powder keg just waiting to blow up at any minute. When I was younger, uh, we used to play uh, a game called Monkey See, Monkey Do. Anybody remember, remember Monkey See, Monkey Do? Like, you know how it works, right? Uh, you try to mimic the person and do exactly what it is that they do. And so they start patting your head, and so you start patting your head. You, they start rubbing their belly, and so you start rubbing your, their, your belly uh, as well. They start walking with a limp, and you start walking with a limp too, whether or not you have a limp. We mimic exactly what we see the other person doing. And monkey see, monkey do is a fantastic game to play when monkey's doing all the right things. But when you grow up and monkey starts doing things that are going to be damaging to you and damaging to the people around you, following monkey into those things is not a good idea. Following monkey into disastrous things will lead to disaster in our lives. We can blow up our lives quick when we follow monkey into the wrong things. And we are not above our ability to follow monkey in those scenarios. I think what we've done at times in, in our life is that we've forgotten that the same grace that we experience in our salvation is the same grace that we need to continually live out our day. Whether we've walked into sin headlong, 
We were saved by his grace. Whether we've lived a, a righteous uh, life all of our days, we're still saved by his grace. And we, are, we, we can't find ourselves in sin so far where shame and guilt is big enough to keep us away from his grace because his grace not only covered us at the cross, but his grace covers our sin when we continue to walk away as well. But I think sometimes that we forget that we need the same grace that saved us at the cross to walk in our daily life in obedience to him. And, and, and when we start to feel like we don't need that daily grace or we somehow outgrown the Spirit's role and leading in our life, that's when we start playing this monkey see, monkey do with the culture. Start repeating what monkey continues to do as opposed to simply following the Lord into the spaces of grace that lead us to true life. And when we forget that we need his leading, our life becomes this powder keg, just waiting to blow up at any particular moment. And so how do we recognize then that we're still vulnerable to sin? How, how do we recognize that, that that's a possibility in our lives? And how do we get off this nasty roller coaster ride of following monkey into these dangerous situations? That's what I want to talk to you about today. Uh, so 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you're, if you're there, we're going to get into there in just a second. What Paul's going to do is he's going to encourage the church that you, as we've been talking about, that you're never too big to fail, never, never too big to fall. And he's going to encourage the church that, that they need to take a lesson from the past, that you, they don't have to do exactly what they saw their ancestors do. They can make choices today that are better than the choices that their fathers have made in the past. And so let's dive here in chapter 10, verse 1. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea, and all were baptized in the Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And sometimes we get to the New Testament, and we wonder, does Christ ever show up in the Old Testament? Well, Christ is the same today, yesterday, and the same as he'll ever be. And so he shows up in the Old Testament. We see he walked alongside of his people in the Old Testament as well. And so right now, as he's pointing back, we see that he was with them in the Old Testament. He showed up in this particular instance. He showed up as what they call the rock, God's provision and protection for them as they walk through the desert. They ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. What Paul's doing here is he wants the church to see their spiritual heritage. He wants them to see the roots that they come from, but he also wants them to begin identifying and recognizing that they are dangerously close to doing the exact same things that they saw their fathers do. Dangerously close to repeating the sins of the past that's going to wreck their lives. And so it says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that your ancestors were all under the cloud. What's the word cloud there? I mean, the, the cloud, it, it means that they were under the protective influence of God. They're under the protective care plan of God. Uh, in your insurance policies, you, you know that you can get normal insurance, right? But you can also get this umbrella policy that helps cover things that you don't understand or you, you don't foresee happening. Normal insurance covers the normal things that you, you can foresee happening. An umbrella policy covers things that, yeah, maybe it might, but we didn't foresee it coming. And so that covers all the extra stuff. And what this is, what Paul is saying is here that they were under the comprehensive care plan of God, that they were his chosen people, 
They didn't know exactly what the route was going to be when they were coming out of Egypt. They didn't know what things were going to look like as they moved forward, but they didn't have to worry about it because they were in good hands, right? Like, like an like a umbrella policy from State Farm. They were in good hands with God under his protective care plan and under his guide. And, and in fact, they were under such good care as they walked out of the desert, God provided them with a pillar of cloud to lead them. He also gave them a, a pillar of fire to lead them as well. And so as they walked through the hot, blistering sun of the desert, they, they had this pillar of cloud that helped shield them from the sun. And as they walked through the cold, bitter cold of the desert evenings, they had this pillar of fire to help walk alongside of them, to keep them warm, to guide them, but also to ward off animals that would uh, be in their, in their midst. And so you see this comprehensive care plan of God being lived out as they walk through the desert. But not only did he protect them in that way, but he also gave them food. He, he, spirit, he supernaturally gave them food to eat while they were walking through the desert as well. And you've probably heard of the idea of manna, right? Every morning that they walked, they, every morning they woke up and they walked out of their tent, they saw this bread from heaven, this heavenly bread that's all over the place. And so they would eat their food. They, their bellies never had to go hungry. But at the same time, they never had to worry about anything to drink. In the desert, even when there was zero water to drink, God still provided water for them. There, there's no water, Moses. Okay, well, give them water out of the rock. Speak to it. Uh, hit the rock. However God called he constantly provided. It was Christ walking alongside of them in the desert, the protective care plan of God. And so what Paul does is he paints this wonderful picture of how God took care of the people. He chose them, he was with them, he loved them, and he provided for them. Now you would think, as well as they were being loved, like you love your kids, you love people around you, you expect that they're going to love you back or they're going to give you some level of, of obedience back. Well, right here, that doesn't happen. They don't give the same thing back to the Lord. Paul says in verse 5, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them since they were struck down in the wilderness. That's quite a turn of events, right? Why would God spend all this time protecting his people, guiding his people through it, does it only to wipe them out? Or at least half of them, those who were the age 20 and above, would die off in the desert. They would never get to see the promised land, except for a guy named Joshua and a guy named Caleb. They got to see. But, but why would God wipe out everybody 20 years old and over? Well, I think the, the, the quick answer is that their affection for God was subtly replaced by an appetite for the things of the world. I'm going to say that again. Their appetite for God was suddenly switched. It suddenly turned and to an appetite for the things of the world. Where God was their satisfaction and he was their protection, they began to look around and see what everybody else around them had. They began to, to play monkey see, monkey do with the culture. Oh, they have that, I want that. And, and, and it's not uncommon to us. We, we see this kind of stuff happening every day, right? Like you turn on the television, oh, you got to have this new phone. And, and if you don't have this phone, like, okay, I'll, I'll go get the new phone. you got to have this house, and it's got to look like this, and it's got to be this. Okay, I'll go get the new house. you got to have this car. you got to have all this. Okay, you got to wear it. Okay, I'll, I'll do that too. They looked around them, and monkey started patting his head, and so they started patting their head. They looked around, and monkey started swirling around on his belly, and so they started swirling around in their belly too. Monkey started limping. They, they, monkey started following other gods and giving the desire and the appetite of their affections to other things. And so monkey followed along and started giving their affection and their desires to the things of the culture as well. Never thinking that, that God would have something negative to say about it. Thinking that like they were God's favorite. 
And if, God, if we're God's favorite, then we can do whatever it is that we want. And when we do what we want, like, there's never going to be some kind of accountability for the thing. Like, God is never going to call us away from the sin in order to follow him back. Like, he's not going to judge us for this. I don't know if you've ever been your daddy's favorite or you have a daddy's favorite in your family. Daddy's favorite always thinks they can get away with anything. They were pretending that they could get away with anything. And God's not going to say anything uh, about it. But it was a powder keg. It was just waiting to blow up at any minute. And so you see over the next eight verses exactly how this plays out. And so Paul, he's going to say, stop playing the game. Like, you know, you know you don't have to play this game, right? Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean that you have to be doing what everybody else is doing. You're not too big to fall. You're not too big to fail. You still need God. Don't repeat the sins of the past. You have a great opportunity right now to undo what's been going on in the past and make good choices today, different choices than what your father's made of the past. And so in verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us so that we'll not desire evil things as they did. The, the word examples here, it's the, it's the Greek word typos. It's the, the word that we get our English word type from. It's a, uh, it's a, a type, it kind of helps us understand like a type of car or a, a type of house, or a type of book. It kind of sets the genre for us so we know what to expect. If we're going to pick up a, a murder mystery book, we, we know that what to expect in that type of book. This is the same thing that Paul is doing here. He's setting the stage so they know what to expect. He wants them to see the examples that he's about to give them so that they can learn from them, so they can be an example that's going to point them in the right d- direction. Uh, and for Paul... There's an example, or there, there's, a, there's a purpose in these examples. I want you to look at verse 6 again, and I want you to go ahead and underline uh, the purpose here. Whenever you see, like, so that, um, you know that the purpose for something is coming up. And so he says, now these things took place as examples or types, or so you can know what to expect, so that, or for this, this is the purpose, so that you'll not desire evil things as they did. Paul's purpose is that he doesn't want the church in Corinth to follow the sinful patterns of the past. He doesn't want them to do the same dumb things that happened in the past expecting some type of different result. That's the clinical definition of insanity, right? You keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, expecting that there's going to be some kind of different result. You keep following the same sin pattern over and over and over again and wonder why you don't feel close to the Lord. You keep following the same abusive patterns and you wonder why your wife doesn't love you. You keep following the same abusive patterns and you wonder why your kids aren't connected anymore. He says, I'm writing this to you so that you don't follow the same patterns of sin that your fathers did and so that you can learn from this. He says, don't play the game. Don't repeat the same sins of the past. And, and I want you to know, like, like, if you, if you, like, when we read these next few verses, and if you're watching at home and you're hearing this or you're going to listen to this at some point later, I want you to know that the, the things that Paul is going to address here is these types, these, these encouragements, none of us are above these. Like we are saved by grace, but none of us are above the ability to do exactly what these, what, what these Israelites did as well. And so pay attention to what he says here in verse 7 and following. He says, don't become idolaters as some, of the, as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to party. Let us not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in a single day, 23,000 people died. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. 
And so these next few verses, what Paul gives is, is he, he puts out four types or four examples for us to learn and to grow from, so to learn to make better choices in. Idolatry, sexual immorality, the testing of Christ, and this incessant, constant complaining as well. But he starts off with uh, idolatry here. He says in verse 7, Don't become idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to party. Now, what Paul's doing is he's pointing back to Exodus chapter 32. And when Moses is meeting with God at Mount Sinai, right? Moses is, is hanging out with God on the mountain. He's up there. He's getting the Ten Commandments and the law that he's going to deliver to the people so they know how to love God and so they know how to love one another well. And so they can see this happening. The whole congregation is around the base of the mountain. They see the mountain. They see the peak. They see the cloud. They see the thunder or they hear the thunder and they see the lightning. They know that Moses is in the presence of God in this moment. And so while they're down at the base of the mountain, it's been a little while, and, and Aaron, who is Moses' right-hand man, this is his brother, he, he decides, you know, I, I'm going to do something for the people here. And he takes all the gold, um, all the jewelry, and he burns it down, melts it down, and he fashions a calf, a, a golden calf, and he sets it before the people and says, this is your God. Worship this God. And, and so the focus of their attention, the, the focus of their worship and the focus of their affections now goes to this calf. The harsh reality is that God was right there in their midst. They could, they could see him. This wasn't like a, a formality of them not knowing God. It wasn't a formality of them not being familiar with him. They'd experienced his miracle time and time again. They were under the comprehensive care plan of God. They've been watching this play out time and time again. But yet they still flock to this idol that's in front of them. You know, sometimes I think that, that, we, that we believe in our mind that if we could just see the power of God like the Egyptian or like Israel saw it throughout Egypt, if we could just see the power of God the same way that was discovered in the Old Testament, that if we could see it differently, maybe we would do something differently, thinking that somehow God doesn't work the same right now, that he's always worked, that his power has changed from Testament to New Testament, right? But the reality is, that they had God in their midst. They had seen him do this, but yet they still propped up this idol in front of everybody. The problem wasn't with the understanding of who God was. They knew him. The problem was that they just didn't care. The affection of their heart had changed. They, they partied around the base of the mountain, and commentators say, actually, that they were doing sexual orgies around the base of this mountain. They didn't even care that God and Moses are right there above them having this conversation. I'm guessing that on that day, they didn't wake up that morning and say, you know what, today's a good day for us to walk away from the Lord. Today's a fantastic day for us to start worshiping other idols. My guess is that didn't just happen over, overnight or when they just woke up that morning. We're not usually aiming to try to be disobedient from the Lord. We're not usually aiming to turn our back on God. We're not usually aiming to just say, you know what, I'm, I'm done with him and to willingly walk away. We're subtly lured away. We're subtly lured away. The passions of our hearts begin to shift. We bend in a few areas. A few cracks begin to show up. And we can feel it. We can see what's going on in us. But we don't take the time to begin to shore up those cracks. We don't put the things around to safeguard so we don't go fall headlong into those sins, thinking that we may be above the ability to wreck our lives. We look around and see what the culture's doing, and I think we just want that a little bit more in the moment, then we want to want the things of the Lord. 
We look around and we want what the culture wants more than we want what Jesus wants for our lives. And it's not too long before the patterns of our affections begin to shift. And then it's not too long before we fashion these idols that we hoist up and say, this is our God. Anything that we lift up with greater affection and give a louder voice and a louder prominence in our life than, than the Lord that can become an idol in our, our lives. When I was in uh, India a few years ago, you, you can walk through the streets, and there are idols everywhere. You see them on the hills. You see people bowing down and worshiping. You can go to the market, and there are idols everywhere that you can buy. But for us, idolatry doesn't always look the same. The path to idolatry for us isn't going to the market in India and picking up a, a household god that we can sit down and, and worship. It's the subtle luring away of our heart from the prominence of God's voice in our life, the prominence of his um, leading of his spirit in our life. It's when the attraction of the culture begins to get the affection of our hearts. And we begin to give our worship to things that were never intended to get our worship. And we start to want that just a little bit more than we want the heart of God. And Paul says to the church, don't repeat the sins of the past. You don't have to do the same thing that your brothers and sisters ahead of you did. You don't have to do this monkey see, monkey do game. It's not. He says, monkey see, monkey don't. Don't do what everybody else around you did. It's so easy to create these idols in our life. Anything can become an idol. Work can become an idol. Not being able to work can become an idol. Your kids can become an idol. The idea of having kids can become an idol. Money, sex prominence, power, prestige, anything that we want in a moment where it begins to steal the affection of our heart more than when we want God can become an idol in our lives. And Paul says, monkey see, monkey don't, don't follow, make better choices today than your ancestors made. And I think the proper response for us as we look at the scriptures and begin to apply it to our life in this context is how do we see ourselves, like if we're just honest with ourselves, is there something that we are going through right now or something that we're lifting up right now that's taken the affections that we have for God and have become an idol in our life? To do an honest survey and to say, is there anything that is robbing my affection away from God and is getting the loudest most prominent voice in my life, and if there is, to lay it down. To say, God, I recognize this. I see this. I hear you. I confess it. I'm going to lay it down, and Scripture says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He said he'll, he'll take that from us. So Paul starts with idolatry, and he moves on to sexual immorality in verse 8, and he already landed on uh, pretty hard on this in chapter 5 and chapter 6, but he's got a a little more to say on it here in verse 8. He says, let's not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in a single day, 23,000 people died. 23,000 people died as a result of sexual immorality or because of moral failure here. The the type or the example that that Paul's referring to is, it's one of my my favorite stories, I think, in the Old Testament, or one of my favorite of the obscure passages. It's not one that we typically hear about, because the fervency for which somebody is willing to drive a stake in the ground and say, you know what, enough is enough. We're not going to keep repeating the sins of the past. Um, uh, Israel, they've gone to a place called Moab, and uh, the people of Moab, they worship uh, another God. They don't worship Yahweh God. They worship um, Baal. 
And Bell is a very promiscuous kind of a God who, who, who invites sexual promiscuity and, and those who worship him live in a sexual promiscuous life. And, and, and he requires that. Not only does he require, he requires all kinds of sacrifices and whatnot, but the people of Israel begin to watch what's going on around them. And the men, specifically of Israel, begin to look at the Moabitess women and see that these ladies are attractive. And what happens is that they want these women bad. And so they, the ladies start to go to the temple to worship their God. And as they go to the temple to worship their God, the, the men, they start off, they're, you know, they, they want these women. They don't want Baal, but they want these women. And, but they're willing to go into the temple to start chasing after them. And it's not too long before their desire for these women is met, but the desire that they didn't see coming begins to, to build, and their desire begins to worship Baal. So they're giving themselves over to sexual immorality, but they're also giving themselves over to another God. Can you imagine the heart of God in this? Like they've been walking with him. They've experienced his goodness. They've been under the comprehensive care plan of God and how, much, how this must break his heart. They saw miracle after miracle, and yet they began to worship Baal because of the lust of their, their flesh for these women. The problem for them, it wasn't that they didn't understand God. The problem for them wasn't that they weren't seeing the power uh, of God. It wasn't because they weren't familiar with him. They knew him. The problem for them was that the affection of their heart had shifted away from following after God, and it actually turned just to be a little bit crass. It it turned to their pants. They they, They wanted what they wanted in a sexual way more than they wanted God. And so the desire for the women began to win out, which turned into idolatry as well. And so what happens is, God says that those who have chased after these women, those who have chased after Baal and given themselves and aligned themselves with Baal, they've, they've got to die. And so a lot of people now are, are dying, but there's this man named Phineas. Phineas is one of my favorite Old, Old Testament characters, but it's because he stands in the gap. And what you've got to know about Phineas is, is Phineas is, is Aaron's grandson. And you remember Aaron? Aaron was at the base of the mountain. Aaron was the one who was leading Israel into worship of, of, of an idol. Aaron was the one who was allowing these sexual orgies to begin to take place. And Phineas would have been there. And Phineas is now saying, this is not going to happen while I'm standing around and i got something to do about it. And so there's a fervor that begins to rise up in Phineas. He says, this is not happening on my watch. And so he uh, sees uh, one of the Jewish men, one of the, the men of Israel, and goes and grabs one of the Moabite women. They are heading to his tent. And they're presumably, they're getting ready to obviously go have sex inside the tent. And, and so Phineas, he, he grabs a spear and he runs inside the tent and he jabs them both through. Like he slams them. You want to talk about a plug for abstinence, right? If you know somebody's standing outside of your door ready to take you through, come on now. That'll help you stop. Think about that next time, guys, women. Phineas was so fired up. He said, I'm not going to repeat the sins of the past. I'm not going to let this continue to go on. I'm going to do something about this. And he literally drives a stake through people to drive a stake in the ground to stop this. And God sees this, and the dying stops, the plague stops. But 23,000 people had already died. Sin doesn't just affect you. It affects everybody else around you as well. 23,000 people. But Phineas said, we don't have to keep doing what we see the culture do. We don't have to keep playing this dangerous game of monkey see, monkey do. We can make a better choice today than what we've seen happening in the past. Even if we've failed in the past, 
We can make a better choice today than what we've made in the past. I'm guessing on that day, there wasn't a lot of Jewish men who woke up and said, you know what, today's a great day for us to turn our back on God and to go chasing after these other women. I'm guessing they didn't wake up and say, you know, today's a great day for us to just turn our back on God and start chasing after Baal. That kind of thing happens subtly when our hearts are lured away. Cracks begin to show up. You begin to feel it, but you just don't do anything about it. You don't sure up. That, that, that temptation that's there. You don't put people around to help guard against that. I'm guessing they didn't willfully walk away from God. They were lured away in that moment. And they start looking around the culture and they see what the culture is doing. And in that moment, they want what's going on in the culture a little bit more than they want the heart and the affection of God's desire. And the patterns of affection begin to shift. And before you know it, you're chasing women into the, the temple. Guys, the path to infidelity and sexual morality it's not usually this huge blow-up that takes place in our life. Does that happen? Yeah, sometimes it just happens like that. But, but the path, the patterns are created over time. They're, they're well-worn tracks, being satisfied in, in ways that lure us away from God's design for the desire that he gave us. It's looking longer than needed. It, it's staying in the conversation a little bit longer than needed to happen because you thought that she was cute. You thought that she was attractive. You thought that he was cute. You thought that he was handsome. It's uh, beginning to find more uh, yourself out of the home and away from your spouse a little bit more because you get attention somewhere else. It's exploring dating sites when you're married. It's going down the hole of pornography and chasing after the desire that, that, that God said can only be satisfied in your spouse. It's creating patterns that become well-worn in our life. It's thinking with your pants and not with the passion for Christ. And what Paul is saying to the church saying, don't repeat the sins of the past. Don't do what your ancestors did. You have the ability to drive a stake into the ground and not to repeat the patterns uh, of sin and, and sexual impurity. You have the opportunity to create patterns of sexual purity. Is there anybody who is willing to stand up in the gap and to be a Phineas? And so the proper response, I think, for us in the context is that we look at it and we apply it to our lives, is are there any places where we've allowed patterns, patterns of sexual impurity, impropriety, where they're starting to create well-worn tracks in our life, where we just need to lay those down before the Lord and say, I see it, I'm aware of it, and I understand that it's wrecking my life, and it's wrecking the life of people around me. Is there anybody who's willing to say, this is what's happening, Lord, confess it, lay it down, see how grace fills that space where we can begin to walk in him, not in shame and guilt, but to walk alongside of him and to say, you know what, Satan, you've had your run in my life long enough, now enough is enough, I'm driving a stake in the ground. Are there any men, are there any women who are willing to stand up in the gap and say, I'm going to be a Phineas in my life. I'm going to be a Phineas in my culture. I'm going to be a Phineas in my family. And we're not going to keep repeating the sins of the past. Today's going to be a day where we make better choices. So after sexual immorality, he moves on to the next two. Testing Christ and complaining in verse 9. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Now, one of the instances that, that Paul's talking about here comes out of uh, the book of Numbers in chapter 21. Like the, the Israelites are just complaining like crazy. I mean, incessant complaining. They've experienced God's provision. They've been under the cloud. They've been under the protection of his care, right? They've seen all this. They've seen him come through time and time again, but they're starting to say things like, why did you even pull us out of Egypt? What, why did you bring us out? Did you just bring us out here to die? Like, where's the food? This food is terrible. 
Where's the water? There's no water around here. And they just start complaining, like, terribly. They're complaining. Like, God had been providing both of those things to them. But they're complaining in such a way that they're saying, we don't like the way that you're providing for us. We don't like the way that you're walking alongside of us. We want it to look differently than, than that. And I think everybody's kind of got their breaking point, right? And I think this was one of the breaking points for God with the people of Israel, again. Because in this moment, he starts to uh, send snakes uh, in, in their path. This is, uh, I think, equivalent to the idea of our kids whining. Our, our kids start whining. You're trying to do everything you can. You're trying to love them. You're trying to protect them. You're trying to do everything you can. You're like, you are well-loved. What are you whining about? You're well-watered. You're well-fed. You're well-taken care of. What is there actually to complain about? You're going to keep complaining? I'm going to give you something to complain about. And then the snakes show up, right? The snakes begin to show up. And what Paul is saying, remember, these are examples these are, these are stories, these are, these are types, the patterns that Israel is supposed to learn from things, genres that are supposed to help guard our hearts. And so the people, they run to Moses and they, and, and they say, God, we, we've sinned, we've messed up, you've got to do something about this. Go talk to God and see if you can stop this. And so he says, okay. And so Moses goes and he talks to God and, and God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a snake, I want you to put it on a pole and I want you to hoist it up. And if anybody would turn their eyes and look at that snake, they'll be healed. And Moses said, okay, that's what I'll do. Doesn't make sense to me, but that's what I'll do. And, and so he goes and he fashions a bronze snake and he puts it on a pole and he hoists it up in the air. And that's exactly what happens. When, when people look at that snake, they're healed. They're saved. Things begin to change for, for them. Now, here's the obvious reality. That doesn't make any bit of sense. Like, how does looking at a snake heal you? How does it save you? How does it fix things going on? Like, if you look at it, you're like, man, that, what kind of voodoo magic is this? But this is exactly the way that God had orchestrated it. It didn't make sense to you. I don't need it to make sense to you. You just need to know that my way is always going to be better than your way. I know how to provide for you. I know how to care for you. I know how to heal you. I know how to stop the garbage that's going on in your life right now. If you would just look to me. Now, the obvious reality is that the snake was pointing to Jesus when he would come. That he was saying, if people, if the church would turn their eyes to Jesus and the things that they are walking through, the things where they feel shame about and the things where they feel guilt about, where they walked in the patterns and the steps of their fathers, that I will heal them, that I will bring salvation for them. But not only salvation for, for uh, the grace of salvation, which brings somebody into the family of God, but I will give you the grace to walk with me and to live life and experience me on a day-to-day -day basis if you would just turn your eyes to me. And so what Paul was saying to the church is don't repeat the sins of the past. Don't do what your ancestors did. You don't have to play this game. No, don't let your eyes follow the pattern of the world, but let your eyes turn to Jesus and live patterns that are connected with the way of the cross. Now the truth is, the only way that any of this changes is that we agree with the Lord that at any moment, we have the ability to blow up our lives. At any moment, we have the ability to walk in gross sin. That at any moment, we can fall headlong into sin. The idolatry, the misplacement of our affections, the sexual sin, the incessant complaining, none of us are above that. We have his grace for salvation, but we need his grace for life to continue to live as well. And none of us are above that. They had the Lord in their midst, but they still rebelled. They still walked away. And so Paul says, don't do that. Don't think that you're somehow above this. 
Don't think that you don't need his grace to continue to live. And so how do we recognize then that we're still vulnerable to sin and we don't play this dangerous game of monkey see, monkey do? Look at verse 11. It says, these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has come upon you except what's common to humanity. But God's faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. Look at verse 12 again. He says, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. So, so how do we understand that we're still vulnerable to sin? We understand that, that we are still vulnerable, that we stop thinking like we're not above the ability to sin. If you think you're above it, you're already there. You're already in this space. Now, realize that Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to people who've said, I want to follow you. I want to, uh, I, I want to do what you want me to do. These aren't people who have never heard of Jesus' name. These aren't people who, who, who have a heart to walk. These are people who know Jesus. He says, recognize that any minute you have the ability to blow up your life. Verse 13, but also be encouraged that no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. He's saying the, the thing that you're walking through, the thing that you're tempted by, this isn't new. You're not the only one who's ever gone through this. There are other people been who the, they've been through the exact same thing, so don't think that you're alone, but God's faithful, and he'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he'll also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear up under it. Now, now here's, here's the truth. God's not going to keep temptation out of your life. That may be hard to hear because you're tired of what you've been falling into or you don't want to continue to fall into things. God is not going to keep temptation out of your life. This is the promise that he gives is a win, right? Not if temptation is going to come. It's when temptation comes, he's going to give you a way out of that. And the reality is the way that he has given us to get out from under it is he's put the Holy Spirit inside of your life. When you came to Christ, you experienced his grace, you experienced new life. All things of the old were made old and all things were made new. You have his life living inside of you. And so you have the spirit now to not continue to go after the things of the past. You have the ability in the Spirit to continue to walk in obedience to Him. And what the Holy Spirit does in your life, He helps to confirm a couple things. He helps to convince you of the truth that you are a brand new identity in Christ, that you are completely His and you are lacking nothing in Him. And so if you feel, if you feel shame, you feel guilt because of that sin, recognize that doesn't come from Jesus. It doesn't come from the Lord. That comes from the enemy. And so you have the ability then to walk in grace with the Lord. And so he confirms this is who you are, but he also has a fantastic role of convicting us when we're walking in ways that we should not be walking. When there are cracks showing up in our life, he has the ability to show up and say, this is not good. We need to shore this thing up and you need to walk away from this because this is about to destroy you and other people around you. But not only does he give us the Holy Spirit as a way, as an answer to the promise that he'll give us a way out, but he also puts the body of believers around us. There, we, God was so cool in how he put the church around us, the big C church, how he gave us brothers and sisters in Christ so that we don't have to walk through this life alone. One of the ways that we walk out of temptation or, or we stay away from temptation is that we engage in the body that he put around us. And one, one, of, the, 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 the most, one of the things I look forward to most in my, in my week is Wednesday night. Wednesday night is when my wife and I, we get together with our life group, and we're in a couples group. And this is a group, guys, where um, we get into the Word, 
We hold each other accountable. We pray for one another. And when somebody goes off on an island and, 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 and says, I'm over here and I'm just kind of hanging out by myself, they, they chase you. <laughs> they, they, they come and get you off the island. We're not going to let you die in your shame. We're going to let you die in your guilt. We're going to bring you back and, and, re, and help you remember what the truth is about you. And, and then even beyond our, our couple's life group, we've got a few men that I, I get together with out of that group. And, man, it's so encouraging. We hold each other accountable. We walk together. And um, we're trying to be better dads to our, to our kids. And we, what does Scripture have to say to us being dads? What does Scripture have to say to the things that we're walking with? We get together and we pray. And we just say, how can we grow up together? God has given us the body as a way to help us stay away from the temptation when it comes. When Satan is a pig and he's going to try to wreck your life and you get people around you to help you walk through that. One of the areas that we've just really been seeing God move over the past year is uh, something that we've been doing for a little while called soul healing. Uh, Soul healing, it's a group of ladies who are getting together on a regular basis, being reminded of who they are in Christ. They're hearing the truth of who Jesus made them to be so they don't walk in addictions, so they walk out of patterns of sin, so they walk in the truth of who God has made them to be. And we're seeing so much traction in that. It's been such a a, a good thing uh, to see. And so what Paul does is he says, guys, recognize that you're not above sin. Recognize that you can blow up your life. We lean into the Spirit as a promise of God, and we lean into the faith community as a promise of God too. I I remember uh, hearing the story of uh, George Burns. Anybody remember the old, old actor George Burns? Uh, is a short little guy, little Coke bottle glasses kind of a deal. The, the glasses really stood out. And I was uh, up late one night when I was a kid, and I was, and I was watching, it was probably like David Letterman or Jay Leno or something like that, and George was on the show. And they asked him, uh, like, hey, tell us a story about your glasses. When did you start wearing these glasses? And he says, funny story, when I was little, I, I was walking along the side of the road, and there was a pair of glasses just sitting there. And uh, I, I was, everything that I was seeing on television, I, I saw actors who were wearing these, these glasses in Hollywood, and so I decided that I was going to start wearing these glasses too. And so he put the glasses on, he started wearing them. Now, he had 20-20 vision, like perfect vision. I had no problem with his eyes. But it wasn't too long that the glasses that he put on began to deteriorate his eyes to now the point where they weren't just glasses for show. Now he actually needed those glasses. It's one of the best ways to fight against temptation. One of the best ways to grow up and who God's made us to be is to get around people who will say, take off the glasses. Take off the thing that is deteriorating your life. Stop doing what you see everybody else doing. Take off the glasses. Don't repeat the sins of the past and walk with the Lord. You have anybody in your life who's telling you to take off the glasses? Saying, don't blow up your life. We're going to walk through that with you. Have anybody encouraging you saying, don't play the game. Don't play monkey see. Monkey not monkey see, play monkey don't. Walk with the Lord in this. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for this reminder from me this week. They just reminded me that never too big to fall. Never been walking with you long enough to not make a bonehead stupid mistake. But that your grace can cover that. And I don't have to keep down this pattern of recklessness. You call me to you. You give me your grace for today to walk with you. You give me healing through your son, Jesus. And you just call me to more. Your way is always better. I'm going to pray that for our family that's gathered here this morning. God, that you would remind us today that your way is better. And where we've walked in the patterns of sin, 
that you would help us to break those chains and to become a trendsetter, to break the chains of the past. Remember that we don't have to walk in the same thing that's always been, even if it was just yesterday, even if it was just the day before. We can walk in your grace for today. And so where we've gone to an island and hold ourselves up, pull us off of that island, get us around people. Where we've said that we're too big to fall, I pray that our arrogance would, would not be the fall of us, that we would allow that arrogance to drop us to our knees and to confess some things going on inside of us. And I pray that today would be a day where we make better choices, not because we're better, but because you put your spirit inside of us and we can, because we know that will lead us to life. And so the game's out there. It's monkey see, monkey do. Give us the courage not to play it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.